0: The following episode deals with explicit descriptions of violence that can be disturbing or distressing to some listeners. These include descriptions of murder and torture, possible mentions of death, suicide, and rape, and sound effects that recall violence and gunfire. If you want to skip these parts of the podcast, timestamps with specific trigger warnings can be found on our website or on the description section. Please be advised. The Philippines has a bad habit of forgetting. Contrary to popular belief, a society does not have to forgive or forget. Just ask Germany and how stringent they are about preventing any Nazi symbolism from being used anywhere within its borders. We will not allow money, corruption, a shameless desire of power to erase the past. We remember the victims of martial law under Ferdinand Marcos. On their behalf, we will never quietly allow the Marcuses to assume power again. Welcome to Yugto, a podcast where we get mad about Filipino history. My team and I released about five episodes last year as a sort of pilot season to have a little feel about the space. Now, with the hellscape of 2020 over, Yugto is greeting 2021 properly with unofficial first season, and we're happy that you can join us. Each episode of Yugdot will tackle a different story, all related to a seasonal theme. For this first season, we dive into the difficult living history of martial law. A hard set of decades under the dictatorship of Ferdinand Marcos that the still-living Marcos family has tried to scrub away from our minds, through endless swarms of misinformation and currying favor with the current sympathetic powers that be. When people defend martial law, they often talk about why it existed. To defend us from communists, for the economic stability of the Philippines, for all the good, basically, that Marcos brought to the country at the time. We'll dismantle those myths in later episodes. But the fact is that these hashtag MarcosForever people don't talk about the individual stories, the individual names. They talk about the big picture supposedly and they ignore the farmers who just wanted better control of their land, the religious people who were just defending the poorest of the poor, the jeepney drivers and teachers who just wanted better working conditions, the indigenous people who just wanted to stay on their sacred places, the students who were just studying for a better tomorrow. Marcos supporters do not talk about the names because they don't want to think about what their beloved Marcos actually sanctioned. What his children, Bong and Aimee, knew was happening right under their noses, and in fact, even encouraged. The reason pro-Marcos people don't do this, the reason the Marcoses themselves don't do this, is because to name names is to give history a face. And that's what we're going to do today. Today, let's get mad. By remembering the face and the name of Liliosa Hilao. By the end of the story, she will be dead. It's September 1972, and Liliosa Hilao has been frequently wearing black. She's mourning the death of democracy in the nation. Liliosa Hilao, or Lily as her family and friends call her, is a rather ordinary student at the Pamantasan ng Nungsod ng Manila. She is one of nine children. She's been an honor student all her life and is now on the cusp of graduating cum laude. Lily is incredibly active in PLM. She's the Student Council President of the Communication Arts Government. She's the founder of the Communication Arts Club. She's an editor in her university paper and a member of the College Editors Guild of the Philippines. She's even the secretary of the Women's Club of the university. Unlike her friends and her sister, Marie, who walked the streets and who were beaten bloody during the days of unrest as activists, she was too sickly to be able to manage to do so. Asthma plagued her and made her unable to act as brave as she was. So instead, Lily embodied the saying, the pen is mightier than the sword. She wrote her heart out about her anger at all the injustice and violence of martial law. The Vietnamization of the Philippines, she wrote. Democracy is dead in the Philippines under martial law. Those were the kinds of headlines that Lily was known for. Lily is exceptional, passionate, smart, likable, a friend to many. She has done so much in her short time living. Would she have done more or done differently, knowing that her life was to be cut short by the exact thing that she was protesting against? It is April 4, 1973. Liliosa has been wearing black for seven months now. Marie is taking time off from school to take care of their mother, who is recovering from an injury. But she also has some friends, fellow students and activists over that day. It is around noon when a now sickeningly familiar scene in the Filipino consciousness plays out in her house. The police knock on the door of the Hilao residence and say they are from the anti-narcotics unit and are looking for drugs. The night is going to end with blood spilled, but so far, only the police know that. Lieutenant Arturo Castillo is the leader of the raiding party. He shows the Hilao family an ID card Mm -hmm. saying who he is and dispelling the doubt that he's from the police. When Marie asks for a search warrant, though, he brushes them off and forces himself into the house. The rest of his cronies follow, and soon enough, the violence begins. As the family continue to demand to see a warrant or a further clarification of who they are and what they're doing, the policemen drop the pretense. They begin beating Marie and her friends. The police flippantly say the country is under martial law. There's no need for warrants, they say, as they rain their fists down over and over and over. The Hillau family is forced to stay put where they are, upstairs or downstairs, wherever they were found, under threat of violence. The policemen overturn the first floor, knocking things over, sticking their dirty hands into the fridge and taking food without permission. It becomes clear that despite their anti-narcotic claims, they are not looking for drugs. The men begin to ask out loudly to Marie and her siblings, Where is your brother? Marie and Lily's brother is yet another known activist. It's unclear why they're here for him, and not Marie, not Jan, her other friend present and beaten on the floor, and another quite well known activist. It's also unclear what they want to do with him. In the midst of all this fear and chaos, Marie is able to go upstairs once and ensure her mother is safe. She gives her mother her lunch and tells her that everything will be all right. Afterwards, she goes downstairs. She waits for an opening, and the men, acting as chaotic as they are, and whipping out alcohol now to get even drunker as they smelled when they first arrived, aren't exactly paying the most attention. Eventually, one of the agents falls asleep, and Marie is able to dash out over the wall of her house and as far away as possible. The men aren't looking for Liliosa when she comes home either, but when she steps through the door, Lieutenant Castillo, either tired of waiting for results or, out of a sick sense of his own sadism, grabs her. Liliosa had heard about the raid at her house, but she chose to go home. Liliosa is not stupid. She knows what people who support Marcus are capable of. She knows what policemen are capable of. She knows what men in general are capable of. She knows that martial law, the reason she wears black every day, is a blanket excuse for these exact types of men to do whatever they want. But Lily wants to know that her family is okay. Marie's words and warnings aren't enough. Lily hopes that the power of the law is hers. She summons every ounce of bravery that she can manage and goes home to face these cops. With their guns, their drunken breaths, her friends' blood on their fists, the food from their own home stuck in their teeth. Lily's bravery is met with violence. She gets the same answer as Marie when she demands to see the non-existent search warrant. Castillo himself seizes the young student and begins to repeatedly, physically beat her. Liliosa is taken by surprise. She is only a young, sickly student, no weapons on her, and this is a towering, military man with fists like hammers and a gun within reach. She doesn't stand a chance as the blows come, one after another, after another. The family makes several false starts to stop what's going on, of course they do. Imagine being a father, a mother, watching them spill the blood of your daughter on the floor. Imagine being a sister, you've shared a room with Lily, you cook food with her nearly every day of your life, and now there's this man in a uniform and he's kicking her and he's kicking her and he's kicking her. They scream for him to stop, they plead, they try to get up. But every single time, Castillo's cronies, the rest of their unit, they point their guns at them and laugh and tell them to sit down. Why is this quote unquote narcotics unit in their house? When not a single person, least of all Lily, have a history of taking, dealing, or purchasing drugs. When her brother, who they had said that they were searching for, didn't do drugs either in his own history. If they are here to hunt down drugs, why are they armed to the teeth with guns? They knew it then and we know it now. All of this drugs talk was just an excuse to hunt down people that they wanted to hunt down. The clock has ticked past midnight now, and while no one has crossed the bridge The stench of death is absolutely in the air. Lily probably barely conscious, if conscious at all, is beat so bad, she can't speak, she can't get up. She is handcuffed and dragged out into the men's vehicle, and they throw her in unceremoniously, along with Jan, two other students, and two more of her sisters. Without another word, the men drive off into the night and this is the last time Lily's family ever sees her alive. How do you call the police when the police themselves are responsible for the crime? That is the question that the Hilao family has to sort out as they're crying as they're panicking, and as the men continue driving towards Camp Krame a supposed bastion of protection in the middle of the city. Here, all of the arrested we know now, were subjected to physical and psychological torture. It was done to each of them in front of each other to increase the pain. Have you ever had a friend physically beaten or raped in front of you? Have you ever had someone you consider a sister be burned with cigarettes or have her bones broken while she cries for help and you're pinned down, unable to say anything, unable to scream. We cannot even begin to imagine what those students, young 20-somethings if anything, with their whole lives ahead of them, experienced that night. They are kept in Camp Krame for several days. I read an account that at a certain point, One of Lily's family was able to see her. They shuffled them into a small room, and Lily's face was swollen, clear signs of having been beaten. Lily told her family member that she had been tortured. It was a very brief meeting, and Lily was dragged out again, never again able to speak her mind, and never again able to share the experiences of what happened that night. If you feel outraged, horrified, or depressed by what happened to Liliosa, then you are not alone. It's horrifying to think that this kind of thing could be happening in our country by the people who are supposed to be protecting us. This anger is righteous, and don't let anybody tell you different. I can't tell you what happened to Lieutenant Arturo Castillo. None of my searches on him yielded anything. He could be dead, or he could be continuing to live peacefully after those atrocities he did. I don't really know for sure. I can't tell you what happened to the men under Castillo's command. Even their names did not show up in any of the things that I could search online. But I can tell you what happened to Lily. We all know the rest of it." It's April 7. After three restless days of fearing the worst, one of Lily's sisters received a phone call saying that Lily was in the Camp Karame Station hospital. She was told to rush there because her sister was in critical condition, though the person in the phone didn't elaborate where the injuries had come from or what they were. When the family got there, any single percentage of hope was dashed. Her body lay there on the table in such a state that being dead must have been a mercy. I have none of my own words for the state of her body when her family saw her. A state which I think would have driven me insane if I saw it and she was my own daughter or my own sister. So instead, I'm going to quote various articles here. They say she was butchered, her face was swollen, her body bore signs of struggle. Her entire torso was badly bruised with finger marks and gun barrel marks all over. Her lips bore cigarette marks as if it had been treated like an ashtray. She had 11 injection marks in her arms and she had deep handcuff marks around her wrists. The mark of a point of a gun appeared on one of her legs and there was the suggestion that she had been sexually abused. Last, there was a hole in her throat, impossible to miss. For the state of the carcass, there was nothing but confusion. By the time they came in, her brain was already taken out and placed in a pail. Her intestines had been removed already. The body was unevenly cut in half up to her vagina like it was an animal carcass at a butchery being hung up to dry. Lily's sister was only in there for a few minutes, barely enough time to even take in that the gory heap in front of her was once her sister, until she was rushed out of the room. She was ushered into an office and came face to face with the man who she had seen savagely beating on her sister just a few nights ago, Lieutenant Arturo Castillo. Was it his cigarettes that were put out on her lips? Were those the marks of his gun on her body? She couldn't ask these questions. Lieutenant Castillo told her and the family that she, Lily, had killed herself. Lily, he explained coolly, had run to the men's bathroom and drank muriatic acid, also known as hydrochloric acid, used to clean things like tiles. It's in fact so powerful that enough amounts of it can literally melt concrete. Now there were plenty of questions, obviously. Why would someone like Lily, who was known to be so clean, randomly end up in the men's bathroom? Where did she get access to muriatic acid? If she did do it, what did they do to her to make her want to kill herself? The only thing that they got was not answers but the definitive statement. Case closed, and here's 2,200 pesos to use for burial expenses. Lily also lived for 21 years to the fullest. She poured her heart out into fighting for what she believed was best for the country. She studied well and did her best to reach out to as many people as possible. They would never see her smile again. And all they had in exchange? was a measly 2,200 vessel. It is April 1973. Two weeks from graduation and Lili Helao is dead. According to those who were there, Lili was not the only one tortured. Every single student that was dragged off was subjected to torture and attested that Lily was forced to drink the muriatic acid that killed her. According to her friends, after Lily died, the torture session ceased. Jan, one of Marie and Lily's friends, who also one day was destined to disappear without a trace, another casualty of martial law, was in his cell for three months. Jan, one of the people who possibly saw Lily die before his eyes, one of the last to see her alive for sure, wasn't able to see her at her wake. Murray was also unable to say goodbye to her sister to whom she was so close, with whom she had shared hopes and dreams for the return of democracy in the Philippines. Murray was still being pursued by the military at this point, so she had to hide instead of saying goodbye. Marie would continue to fight for the ideals her sister died for, eventually being held and tortured again in 1974. But all things end in hope, at least. Marie gave birth to her first daughter while in that prison. Her name was Elisa, proof that life thrived even among the deaths of martial law. Liliosa Hillau's college mates recall wearing black armbands on that day in her honor. Where she would have sat with them, there is now just a photo of her, as they remember her. A smile on her face, and eyes reflecting a hope that the nation will one day get better. And that she'll be able to use the things that she learned to be a part of it. Lilio Sahila was the first woman to die by the hands of the police or military after the declaration of martial law. She was taken from her home tortured probably raped made to suffer and killed decades later the man whose iron fist brought down this pain and indignity upon her and thousands of others and who died peacefully in bed surrounded by family would be buried by our current president in the cemetery of heroes today Thousands of doors have been broken open and people shot in the streets by policemen who claim to be from drug squads, part of the Tertus campaign. We at Yugdob believe that to forget our history is to forget ourselves and who we are. Forgetting our history is not the way to move forward. In fact, it's how we get stuck repeating the same mistakes. For those out there who support or work for the Marcoses and Dutertes, do they remember Liliosa Hillau? Do they remember how they dragged her out into the night and put out cigarettes on her lips? Do they remember how they said she killed herself by pouring acid down her throat? Do they remember that she was just a university student, who had never been to a rally, who wasn't with the communist army, who had never threatened anyone in her life? Remember her story. It is the story of countless others. In the name of Liliosahila, we remember the past, we remember the truth. Let's continue to fight for the truth of our Filipino past and the future of justice and dignity that we all deserve. Thank you for listening, remembering, and getting angry with us today. Yugto is narrated, researched, and written by Sunny and is supported by the Work in Progress team. Sources and any subsequent correction of facts for the episode can be found on the website. Support us on Spotify, Anchor, and YouTube, or email us for any questions at whipinc.phgmail.com. At Finally, Help us get these stories out there by sharing us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or any social media. Join us next fortnight for another episode, and remember, activism is not terrorism, truth is not terrorism. See you next time, and keep fighting the good fight.